Everlasting praise from Psalm 145. I have uh, said it many times before that out of all the generations that have ever lived, those of us living in the West, in particular in this current civilization of the West, that we have to be one of the most affluent, peaceful, comfortable, free, healthy people that have ever lived. There is much evidence pointing in that particular, particular direction. A uh, hundred years, the life expectancy in, even in countries like Australia was about 40, 45. Now, uh, and I'm just giving you simple numbers here, uh, it's about 80, 85. That that is just the reality. So we are tremendously privileged in so many different ways like that. But for all of our advances, we have become the most entitled, unhappy, ungrateful, unsettled that has ever lived. And I'm not just talking about everybody everywhere those who have nothing to do with God or don't go to church. I'm also, unfortunately, referring to many Christians as well. And this pandemic has has certainly brought out the best and the worst in us. A large part of, I think, of the reason for this is that, uh, that we as a nation, as a whole, have moved further away from God. Instead of putting our faith in him, we have put our faith in politicians and doctors and scientists to get us through this. Uh, as, as if they have the answers, as if they, have, they are the ones who control destinies. But the longer it goes, and and the hope that this was going to be resolved quicker than what it was, it's been going on for six months or more now, that you can sort of see the level of enthusiasm waning, that this is going to be ending soon. And the longer it goes, the more we realise that our faith in them is misplaced as we find ourselves less secure, less able to make plans about the future. And the Bible constantly challenges us about this. The book of James tells us, you know, you who make plans that we will go to that city and we will do business there. And I say, well, if the Lord wills, you will be able to do this. And suddenly our independent spirit, our free-willing attitude, it's all in you. Suddenly it's cracking, isn't it? That whole attitude of self-determination. And so we become less secure. 
and, and, and we realise that, that there is fear, there is anger, there is frustration sitting just underneath the surface of it all. So is this how we are meant to live as Christians? Or are we meant to be living to a different drumbeat than the rest of the world? Are Christians simply to reflect the current environment that we find ourselves or are Christians to, even though living in these times, to know that nothing, apart from God, nothing is certain. That over our lives, remember that, that song we just sung, that... Uh, even though I don't know what the future brings, that all of our lives are in his hands. And we have to come to that point, and I want to, uh, in, in the message this morning, I want us to come to, to realise that our lives have to be lived differently, which is exactly what the, the scriptures call us to do each and every time. So don't just lift the bar higher, lift it higher. Don't just fall down to what the rest of the world is doing. There was a conference at a Presbyterian church in Omaha years and years ago. And people were given helium-filled balloons and told to release them. At some point in the service, when they felt like expressing their joy that they felt in their hearts. Since they were Presbyterians, they weren't free to say, Hallelujah or praise the Lord. Maybe this is something that we can try since we cannot sing, right? So we come with helium field balloons and at the moment we feel joy and happiness, we just let them go. Then someone will have to pick them from the roof. Anyway. So all through this service, balloons were released as an expression of joy. Interesting thing is that when it was over, a third of the balloons were still unreleased. So this morning, I want us all to let our balloons go. As we look at Psalm 145. Now this psalm is a transitional psalm because it is the last of the psalms of David and it is the first of a series of praise psalms that form uh, a really fitting end to the end of the the Psalter. And uh, as you read, as you go to the end of the psalms, it's just praise, praise, praise. And then the big bang, the explosion of Psalm 150 obviously. But out of these, some have described Psalm 145 as the crown jewel of praise. And this one is also the last of what is called the acrostic psalms. What is an acrostic psalm? An acrostic psalm is where each verse begins with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, as a point of interest, you would, you would notice that there are only 21 verses. Uh, and that is because the one beginning with N, which is supposed to be N, was missing. But the discovery 
of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 actually supported the existence of that verse in other ancient texts. The, the, just as a reminder, the, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were written about 200 years before, before Christ. So then that, that verse was uh, reinserted and it is part of verse 13, just as a matter of detail, right there. Now, a distinguishable, distinguishable mark of the true believer, I think, in every generation is that despite persecution, oppression, despite tears and, and anguish, there is still a triumphant note of praise to the Lord. And we need to understand that praise is more than saying a few nice words about God or even to God. Praise is more than singing a few songs and hymns. It is more than fellowshipping together with other believers. Praise is allowing ourselves to be renewed and transformed by the presence of God in our lives each and every day. It is a way of life. And when we do come together as a church and when we're able to actually sing and praise and, 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 and share with how God has, has been working in our lives, uh, that becomes the, the event where that, that is, is, is magnified as the people of God come together. But it doesn't make any sense unless we've been living a lifestyle of praise each and every day. Otherwise, it is removed from the reality of each of our lives. The one who created the heaven and the earth continues to work in the lives of his children each day, irrespective of the circumstances in which we find ourselves in. My mother was just in hospital recently and uh, when I, when I visited her with all the restrictions, all that, um, I knew that because I, I've known my mother all my life, that the moment I walked into her bed, that rather than finding somebody who was whinging about her situation and about the staff and the nurses and the hospital and her situation in life, that I would see a smile, that I would see praise from her mouth and she would be saying, thank God I'm still here. And why do that? Because that's the way she's lived all her life and that's, it's a great example, isn't it? That irrespective of not knowing whether she was going to be alive the next day or next week, he says, my life is in God's hands. What is there to complain about? I know where I'm going. Real praise is surrendering. That is a life of praise. That is surrendering our lives for his glory and honour alone. So what are the, some of the aspects of God that David, King David, praises God 
Paul. First of all, in verses 1 to 3, the greatness of God. The greatness of God. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, his greatness no one can fathom. You might remember the, the, the great video called Indescribable, which was a, a sermon presented by Louis Giglio, which uh, went all around the world. In, and he painted a, for us this wonderful picture of the greatness of God through the universe that he has created. And even then, just what, that is simply just what we can see with our physical eyes and, and we can point a telescope everywhere you point it that is something amazing, something wonderful, something new to be discovered and it just keeps going and going and going. And it is too wonderful and marvellous for us with our small little minds to even comprehend or understand, to fathom it. It is, in true words, indescribable. There aren't enough words. He's certainly, God is certainly beyond us, beyond our galaxy, our universe, beyond our theology, beyond our dogmas and scientific knowledge. In a world that spends so much time on personal experience, God is beyond that. So we will miss we will miss his greatness. We will miss all of that if we spend time reflecting rather than on him, we reflect on ourselves and our condition, our situation, our needs, our wants. A while ago there was a great little book written by J.B. Phillips. Um, Your God is too small. So you can guess what the rest of the book is. Um, released about, I don't know, 70, 80 years ago. And, and one of the great quotes inside this little book was, big men have a little God. Little men have a big God. That's it. That's what the, the rest of the book is like. It's not really complicated language. This is language that we can all understand. The bigger man gets, the smaller his view of God becomes. But if we are wise enough to humble ourselves, make ourselves smaller, what John the Baptist said, our view of God grows and grows. As Louis Giglio said in, in in the video, he said, I don't want to make you feel small. You are small. If there weren't enough reasons for praise here, David also provides some direction in how we are, uh, on how, how to praise. Uh, firstly, his praise is consistent when he says, every day I will praise. That's what he means. Not one day in seven, not just on Sundays, not just when he felt right, but every day. 
consistent. Secondly, it is continuing because he says forever and ever. We must also praise the Lord continually, fervently and into because we will have to continue, we will do it into eternity. This is not for just a brief span but for all of time. And thirdly, his praise is ever growing, ever expanding. More reasons. He says his greatness no one can fathom. Um, every now and then I like to do this. You, you go wandering through a, par- a, a national park, a forest, and uh, you go through these roads, these dirt roads, and, and it's easy to get lost in it because at every turn there is something new to discover. There is a sign here. This says there's a waterfall here. There's a there's a there's a way there, or there's a little crook, a uh, little creek there, uh, a mountain there, a water, uh, somewhere to take a photo, and 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 you. At every turn, at every point, you get lost in it because I say, well, this leads to there and it leads to that and it goes on. His greatness, no one can fathom. You get lost in it, is what David is saying. A new experience of God leads us to a new aspect of his character. How wonderful he is. And we need to praise the Lord every time we say, wow, I've read that verse many times before. I read that passage, but suddenly it clicks with my current experience and I say, wow, I never knew that. That's exactly what God is saying. That is the Holy Spirit speaking to you through his word. That's the way it's supposed to work. Every day God sends countless blessings to his children. There is every reason why we should praise him every day, every moment. Then we have the imparting of God from verses 4 to 7, the imparting of God. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works and will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. We are to be eternally grateful for the generations before us who taught us about God and the great things he has done. Who are these people? They are our Sunday school teachers, scripture teachers, uh, missionaries, pastors, our parents at home, grandparents. Maybe some of us came to know the gospel through friends who cared about us. They are the ones who tirelessly imparted the truths of the gospel with love. 
because when they could have been staying home or, you know, watching television or making pancakes and just enjoying the good life at home by themselves, they said, no, I'm actually going to go out there, I'm going to teach some of this wonderful truth to others. I know these rotten kids aren't going to appreciate it, but one day they might. Right? You were a part of those youth groups, you remember it, right? You gave your leaders a hard time and then you became leaders and they gave you a hard time and the cycle goes on. But this is how one generation will commend your works to another. It is imparting the knowledge of God. Because you didn't want to keep these blessings to yourselves. You want to share it. Fathers to sons tell the account of God's mighty acts. And there are periods, obviously, when sons think they know everything. So what is that going to possibly tell me that I don't already know? Because at 15, you know everything. About everything. But then as you obviously mature and age, you're saying, well... And one generation passes to another and praise and adoration to God continues and continues. And they do this to show us how great God is, to encourage us, to build us for the future, to warn us of the things and the potholes and the mistakes that are ahead, but to keep going despite the difficulties that we will face. The Old King James Version had a, had a closer understanding of verse 6, which unfortunately is lost in some of the newer translations. Uh, and this is what he says in the KJV. He says, And men shall speak of the, mighty, the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. Now, instead of the word terrible, the NIV and others have awesome or mighty. Because nowadays when we talk of something terrible, we we think of something shoddy or bad or just horrible. The older meaning is, is causing fear or dread or terror. And in the KJV, um, King James Version, Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 32, for example, has the great, he calls, Nehemiah calls God the great, the mighty and terrible God. Not only speaking of his acts, but also of his character, which is also described as terrible. Now, you speak of the word terrible today and say, well, how, how is your God? I was like, he's terrible. Okay, gee, thanks for sharing the gospel with me then. But let's look a little bit deeper. The plagues of Egypt, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Today we fear tsunamis and earthquakes and floods and droughts. 
we rightly describe these things as you're in the middle of them. It's terrible. Pandemics, terrible. However, with time, not just our language has changed, but also our perception of God. Today, many view God as a, a mate who look after us. But this is an incomplete, I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm saying it's a very incomplete view of the God in the Scriptures. Here it means someone who causes fear and terror. God isn't some soft, cuddly teddy bear you can snuggle up to, but he is a God to be revered. Yes, what a friend we have in Jesus. On the Aussie version, what a mate we have in Jesus. That's okay, you can say that. But he is a fearful, majestic, even terrible in the things that he does. You're not convinced yet? Look at the cross. If the father was willing to do this for his son, to show his love, but also to show his justice and his anger and his wrath. He's fearsome, terrible, majestic. And he he deserves to be lifted higher and higher This is why we tell of his excellent and terrible greatness from one generation to generation so that people will need to understand what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. From one generation to the next. There's a story of Alan Cameron. He was part of the Presbyterian movement in Scotland in the 1600s. He was also a covenanter, a covenanter were those who opposed the control of the church by the, by the monarchy. And he, being a godly man, he influenced his family with the gospel and his son Richard, Richard Cameron, became an ordained minister of the Church of Scotland. Eventually his enemies caught his son Richard, they cut off his hands and his head and took them to his father who was in jail in Edinburgh. Why did they do this? With the only purpose to add grief to his sorrow. Those were the times. And they asked him, do you know these? And he took them, he bowed, he got on his knees and he kissed them and said, and this is what he said, he says, I know them. They are my dear sons. And then weeping and praising God, he went on and said, It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me or mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. Who can can praise God like that? Who? Who? Only a true Christian who in his deepest, darkest, 
hour can praise God like that. The goodness of God, verses 8 to 9. The goodness of God. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. You will note that these verses are expanded later on in verses 14 to 21 that we're going to look at, but God originally revealed this side of his greatness to Moses while on the mountain. What happened? Well, when Moses came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, where he received the tablets, Ten Commandments, he was devastated to find the people worshipping the golden calf. What followed is the inevitable punishment from God and 3,000 died. But inside, Moses, who just this, had this amazing, glorious experience in the presence of God, his, nobody, you know, his presence was, a, they couldn't even look at him. But inside of him, he was so discouraged that his whole vision of the promised land where God was leading was now in tatters. And he wasn't sure if God would remain with the people to bless them and guide them. Inside of him, his world was crumbling inside and he desperately needed for a reassurance. So he cried out, he cried out to God in Exodus 33, 18. He says, now show me your glory. Show me your glory. And in what is one of the great events, one of the great passages in Scripture, I encourage you to go home and read it. One of the great events, God passed in front of Moses proclaiming. Now, he wasn't able to, to see him, obviously, face to face, but he was, he was hidden in the cleft of a rock. But God proclaimed this as he went past. This is what he proclaimed. He said, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, verse 6. Who said this? God said this. It was a self-revelation. And this declaration from God himself was an important part of something that the other writers in the, in the Old Testament picked up on because this declaration was just so amazing, right? So they would quote it and paraphrase it in other passages. For example, in Numbers 14, 18, in Joel 2, 13, Psalms 86, and I'm sure you pick up this phrase from Psalm 103, um, verse 8, God's gracious, merciful nature, his slowness to anger. Slowness to anger. In other words, he's not like a volcano, he's more like a, a soft, slow boil, right? He doesn't boil and explode straight away, but it's, right? Don't push him too much, he's patient. He's patient. Slowness to anger, abundance of steadfast love. It's crucial in understanding the character of God. And then 
we come to the glory of his kingdom, verses 10 to 13, the first part of verse 13. The glory of his kingdom. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. David, the greatest king of Israel, mentions the word kingdom four times in these verses. Obviously he is not referring to his own reign, but God's. It's interesting that some 500 years after David wrote these words that none other than King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon used almost the same words as David. Nebuchadnezzar who had boasted about his greatness and strength and power. He didn't acknowledge God. What did God do? He punished him because of his pride. God punished him. He had to live with wild animals and eat like wild animals. For seven years he went mad. You can read about it in the scriptures. I think some of our current leaders might need to. That's enough. Um, Now at the time of his recovery, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged rather than him, acknowledge that God is king, he is the mighty king, and therefore he spoke these words, which was our first reading this morning. Let me read it again. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? All earthly kingdoms have come and gone and are simply now part of history. They all took their turns at greatness, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the French, the Spanish, the English and the Americans. The powers of today will follow the way of the rest. But the Kingdom of God will continue because it is not of this world. And through Christ, his kingdom has already been established. We looked at the parables of the kingdom to understand a little bit more of the way the kingdom of God works. And on that day that Christ returns, it will be fully established so that all the world will see Christ as king and bow to him, King of kings, the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow. And lastly, the provisions of God. Verses 13 to 21. We're not going to read all the verses, but
But this is how he starts. As the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. So these verses are simply an expansion of verses 8 to 9 who told us who God is. And these verses tell us what he does. What does he do? Well, in verse 14, he helps the weak. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. What else does he do? He provides food for all creatures. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. What else does he do? He hears our prayers. The Lord is near all to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. What else does he do? He protects his own. Verse 20, the Lord watches over all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. Let me tell you a story of a well-known character in the Christian world, John Wesley. John Wesley was 21 years of age when he went to Oxford University. He came from a, a Christian home and he was gifted with a keen mind. He was smart, not only smart, but he was also good looking, apparently. Yet in those days, he was a bit snobbish and sarcastic. We don't know anybody like that, do we? <clears throat> One night, however, something happened that set in motion a change in Wesley's heart. Uh, while speaking with a porter, he discovered that the poor fellow had only one coat and lived in such impoverished conditions that he didn't even have a bed to lie on. Yet he was an unusually happy person, filled with gratitude to God. And Wesley, being immature, thoughtlessly joked about the man's misfortune and said, And what else do you thank God for? With a touch of sarcasm, of course. And the porter smiled and in the spirit of meekness replied with joy and says, I thank him that he has given me my life and being a heart to love him and above all a constant desire to serve him. Wow, that response. So this deeply moved Wesley and he recognised that this man knew the meaning of true thankfulness. Many years later, an older, wiser John Wesley in 1791, he was lying on his deathbed at the age of 88. Those um, who gathered around his deathbed realised how well he had learned the lesson of praising God in every circumstance. And despite Wesley's extreme weakness and his dying hours, he began singing the hymn, I'll praise my maker while I have breath. How very different. He has learnt the lesson after all those years, right? Brothers and sisters, we all need a greater view of God. He isn't just the one who makes our lives better. He's the very source of life. 
Our lives are here to give him glory just as the rest of creation has been created to do. You remember the words from that old Sunday school song. My God is so great, so strong as so mighty, there's nothing God cannot do. So come, church, praise and celebrate the King. I know you want to do it right now. Celebrate the King when we come together. More importantly, celebrate the King when you're at home, alone. Celebrate the goodness of the King who is with us, no matter what. And may God bless us. Amen.